Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. I was in Beaverton last week. They, the saints there send their love. They said hello. It's, uh, it's always surprising to me. I show up at these CRC churches, and there was a, a couple there that had lived in Moscow with Dean back in the day, and a retired pastor friend of mine who I, didn't, I did not even realize had come back into the CRC was there. It was like an old family gathering. I also heard that Luke did a great job. I'm going to see him later today, and I've heard lots of great things, so I'm going to pass that on to him. He'll be pleased. I also heard he only took 22 minutes, <laughs> and so I'm going to use his time from last week. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Now, um, yeah, I felt like I had to clarify. Uh, even, even poor poor Joel and I were talking about it, and he's a little confused about what, what am I going to preach about now. So I've been talking about Israel, and I thought that series was behind me, and that I can move on to some Advent things, but it was requested that I do one more, and that is, what is the future of ethnic Israel? What, how do they fit in? And that was actually the one thing I did not want to talk about, because then I would have to make up my mind what I thought about the subject. So just give me a few weeks. In January, we're going to finish the Israel series with Romans 11 and exactly what's going on there. Today, what I'm going to do is start, I'm going to do a couple of now short little groupings. It is Advent, so we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And what I want to do is, is these aren't really sermons so much as meditations uh, the next four weeks. Uh, two from Genesis and two from John. First, the, two, the, the first two from Genesis will be how the incarnation was foreshadowed even in the creation of the world and the creation of man. Uh, so we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. That's where we're going to talk about today. Next week is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And before we begin to consider what the Lord has to teach us today, and, and Laura, I'm going to talk a lot about grammar today, so this sermon is going to make... You're listening carefully, okay? I can't wait for your notes. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. All right, before we begin, let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would enter our hearts and so fill us with your love, that forsaking all evil desires, we may embrace you, our only good. Show unto us, for your mercy's sake, O Lord our God, what you are unto us. Say unto our souls, I am your salvation. So speak that we may hear. Our hearts are before you. Open our ears, let us hasten after your voice, and take hold of you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Now, have you ever considered what role the ear plays in the Christian life? What role does the ear play in the Christian life? What does it have to do with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, I I know everyone here, there's no Van Goghs in our midst. Everyone has two ears, right? Uh, one on either side of your head, and we could talk about those ears biologically, but I would like to talk about them covenantally. I would like to talk about the fact that your ears are proof that, uh, uh, that God was foreshadowing the incarnation even in the first days of the world. Now, the Bible uses the ear synonymously with the heart and mind. All three are organs of cognition. They're organs of understanding, organs of reason. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 2 tells us to make our ear attentive to wisdom and to incline our hearts toward understanding. 
So true hearing involves listening and understanding. And if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How many times, parents, have you echoed your parents when you said, listen, I know you hear me, but you're not listening to me, right? I, I can tell you hear me, but you are not listening. I don't know how many times I heard my father's voice say these very things through me standing in my kitchen. Kids, listen, <laughs> right? It means more than just receive the words. Job 34, verse 16 says, If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. So understanding is downstream of listening. Okay? We, we, we like to think the mind works all by itself. It's just an organ of reason. It just does logic. It processes information. But what you see here is Augustine and Anselm's statement that I believe so that I know, right? The mind has to receive information before it can process anything. Listening is crucial to understanding, to thinking, to contemplating what is true, good, and beautiful. The Old Testament personifies the ear. The Old Testament refers to the ear as understanding, as seeking, and as testing words. Proverbs 18.15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Job chapter 12, verse 11, does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? So your, wor- your, your ears eat. You're, you're, you should have hungry ears. You should have ears that you train to like a certain kind of food and not another kind of food. Okay? This is crucial. We're not just listening. It's not just passive. We are supposed to be training our ears to receive certain things and to reject certain things. It should taste the words and discover if they're actually worth consuming. Words are to be savored, stored up, meditated upon. The ear was made to receive. And in the creation account of Genesis 1, man hears before he speaks. Now, there's a a lot about this, and we're not going to get into it now, but Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two different versions of the same creation, okay? They're two stories about how the world was made, man was made, especially, and and in each of those, things are laid out a little differently. But in Genesis 1, if you isolate it and just read it, man listens before he speaks. He is first and foremost a a, a being that receives the words, but does not produce words. And I think that if you think about that and what that actually means, that is enough for us to meditate upon for the rest of the day. We were made to hear first and speak second. Now, man is called to to incline his ear in Proverbs chapter 4, 5, and 22. If you look at Proverbs chapter 4 and 5 and 22, those chapters are speak a great deal about man inclining his ear. Hearing isn't just a physical activity. It's a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. The ear receives, and what it receives, it affects our affections, and it is the mind is fed through the ear, okay? It's like you have a little mouth of sorts here, and it's chewing on the words. It's consuming the words. It's feeding your brain. Man is called to incline his ear, his ear, and what does that mean? What does it mean to incline one's ear? Well, inclining the ear is to be favorably disposed to what is heard. 
To have deaf or heavy or uncircumcised ears means that you reject what is heard. Okay? To incline our ear is to circumcise our ear. Now, why, why would the Old Testament authors use the sign of the covenant, circumcision, something that is done to a male member, right? Why would they take that word and apply it to the ear? Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10 says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Now, an uncircumcised ear is an uncovenanted ear. Okay, so it, it, for just a moment, this is, there's so many rabbit trails here. I promise I will not go down any of them. But it's important for us to understand something. We, we are told that circumcision is the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. Okay, but when is the last time we actually stopped and thought about what is actually happening in circumcision? Why that? I think we can answer the question because man was made to be fruitful and fill the earth. And so those who come into covenant with God have their male members circumcised, devoting everything that proceeds from it to the Lord. The seed of man is meant to be devoted to the Lord. Okay, and, and, and this is why the sign is the sign. Now, how, when you take that sign, right, when that is folded into baptism, oh my goodness gracious, maybe I'll do a series on that someday, because that is my assumption, is that that process, everything that proceeds from the member, is devoted to the Lord, it still exists in water baptism. But for now, the male member is circumcised, devoting everything that proceeds from it to the Lord. Now what you're doing here in Jeremiah, they're talking about circumcising the ear, which is a reverse. It means devoting everything that enters here to the Lord. Everything that enters into our ear ought to be devoted to the Lord. That is why we ought to, what, what we meditate on, what we think about, what we read, what we listen to, what, what, what we consume, what we feed our ears matters. And, and so you can have uncircumcised ears. You can have ears that are not inclined towards the Lord. You can have ears that resist and reject the word of God. Using the covenant sign of circumcision for the ear or for the heart, as they also do, indicates a spiritual reality in which the ear and heart are likewise dedicated to the Lord. Ears not inclined favorably toward the Lord, undedicated, uncovenanted, they end up being scornful toward the Lord's self-revelation. That's what Jeremiah tells us. That it's not just that we reject it. You reject it long enough, and what you do is you hate it. You will cover up your ears. You will do everything you can to stop them up to prevent the word from entering there. Rebellious ears lead to rebellious hands. Hardened ears lead to hardened hearts. Ears that resist the truth resist the spirit. This was Stephen's charge, the proto-martyr. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, this is what he said to Israel. This is exactly what he was thinking when he said these words. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So look at what he's doing there. You have uncircumcised hearts, uncircumcised ears, and those two things lead to resisting the Holy Spirit. You can't have stopped-up ears and a stopped-up heart. You can't have uncircumcised ears, uncircumcised hearts, and receive the word of God or the work of the Holy Spirit. 
On the other hand, there is something that the apostle refers to as itching ears, which are favorably inclined indeed, but towards what is already found agreeable. Okay. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Okay. We like certain interpretations of scripture. We like certain views of ethics. We like certain ethical standards. We like certain ways of understanding things. And what we eventually will do is incline our ear, indeed, towards those things that please us. I don't want to hear a contrary opinion. I don't want to hear anything that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to hear anything. Therefore, that's edifying. And, and this is what people do. They accumulate and, and, and inc- indeed incline their ear towards things that already agree with the flesh. Now, how often is that what you're doing? How do you tell the difference between that and, and having eyes truly inclined towards the, the Lord? Because I don't know about you. I don't like to be told things I don't want to hear. Right? Uh, somebody gave me a book the other day, and I took the book from them, and I, and I knew in my heart I was never going to read this book. <laughs> right? Now, we could get into that, but I did have to actually think, why? Right? My, my initial response is, I don't have time. My, my second, when I really thought about it, is like, I don't really want to deal with what's inside of it. I don't have time to think about that. Now, how often do we do that? How often do we do that? Incline our ears, have itching ears for those things that we already approve of. Now, we learn from our text today that man was made with ears so that he might receive the word of God. That is why he was given ears. Those heavenly words, their tone, their content, and their intention, the grammar of them, teach us about the use of the ear and how man ought to receive the word of God from heaven. Now, further, what we're going to do is see how the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the the very word of God, was anticipated in God and man's first interaction. Their very first face-to-face interaction, right there in that interaction, we are told that the incarnation is going to happen. Now, if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, this is what we read. Right? This is right at, right? God has made man out of the dirt, breathed life into him, Man stands up, and this is what happens. And God blessed them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed them, and God commanded them. Here we have God's first recorded words to mankind, and what we uh, first observe is that man understands them. Now, this is, this is what I like. You have to be careful with this kind of thing because there's a great deal we're not told here. How long from the creation of man to this conversation, how much time has it been? In fact, if you look into it, what day of the week are we even talking about? Is this the sixth day, seventh day? <laughs> is this, has there been a time period that's passed? Okay, uh, there's a lot we don't know. What we're also not told and I think this is important, is that God has to sit man down and begin with the alphabet. Okay, Adam, here's an A. Here's a B. I'm I'm sure they didn't speak English, but bear with me. Right? He didn't then have him write cat in the sand. He didn't move then to more complex things like sentences. 
and from sentences to paragraphs. There's no lessons here. Man is made, man stands up, man inclines his ear towards heaven, and God speaks, assuming that man is going to understand him because man was made to understand him. Man was made to receive the word of God. There was no lessons necessary, nothing needed to be done, but for God to speak and man to receive it. Language is present in the world before man existed. The precedence of language is implied from the very beginning when it says that God spoke creation into being. In the Bible, one quality of language is its prior, even parental authority over the human mind. So Adam came into a, he was created and brought into a world already full of the word of God. The trees were the word of God. The mountains were the word of God. The word of God was the very cosmos in which man was made. In the Bible, this is what we assume. The language of God was already present in the world. It's the very structure of the world, and man was made to perceive it. Now, theologian Carl Rayner says that man is a hearer of the word. That is what he is. He, he is a hearer of the word. Man was made to receive words from heaven. Robert Lethem, a theologian, and uh, I, I believe he's English, he wrote a, a wonderful systematic theology, and in that he says this, even before the fall, Adam was given word revelation in order for him to understand his place in the created order. His task and responsibilities were spelled out verbally, while God's walking in the garden and calling out to Adam immediately after the fall implies that communion between God and man was part of the original created order, and that this included verbal communication. Man was made to speak face-to-face with the living God. So later, when Moses goes into the tent of meeting and he has a face, it says he meets face-to-face with God like friends, what he has been restored to there is what Adam had originally before the fall. Because this is what all human beings, if, if they believe in Jesus Christ and are restored in Jesus Christ, will come to have the same face-to-face relationship because that is what we were made for. We were made to have a face-to-face dialogue with the living God. That is what we were made for. Now, the second thing we see here is that God's first word is a word of blessing. God blessed them. This precedes commandment, right? So when... (laughs) I'm sorry. I laugh because people make... You know, they make a great deal out of the distinction between law and gospel as if law precedes gospel. But that is not true. We see it in the very first communication. God first blesses man before he tells him to do anything. The Ten Commandments themselves, the great law of Moses, it it, it begins with how God saved Israel out of Egypt. I saved you, now go and do this. God blesses Adam, and then he tells him what to do. Grace always precedes law, always. The law itself is gracious because it's God inclining himself towards us and, telling, and revealing himself to us. Man was made to receive the favored words of God from heaven. That's what he was made for. John Calvin wrote, the blessing of God may be regarded as the source from which the human race has flowed. Man, or man's blessing, I should say, is, u- is unique If you go back to Genesis, uh, well, I'm sorry, God's blessing of Adam and Eve in Genesis 128 
unlike his blessing of the animals in 122, is accompanied by the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth, providing an important foundation for, over, for the overall concept of blessing itself. What I mean by that is he, he blesses Adam and then gives him a commandment, and the commandment and the blessing go together. What is the blessed life? Well, the blessed life then are the things God tells Adam to do. The blessed life it consists of the Lord's commandments from Genesis 1.28, fruitful productivity and obedience to God's commands. That is the blessed life. So for every human being that comes after Adam, the blessed life is not a mystery. It's right there in the first interaction between God and man. Bless you. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Take dominion. All of those commandments are the blessed life. That's the blessed life. I mean, all those poor monks who thought they were going away to monasteries to live the blessed life. Now, I, I just got done studying medieval history for a seminary course I'm taking, and, and these zealous men, and, and I was thinking about this, like so much of the blessed life, they were so close to the kingdom of heaven, right? They were so close to understanding the full blessedness of life. But, but this is, we, having a family is part of the blessing of God. Being in community, in fellowship, being fruitful, being productive, all of these things, what we have always done throughout church history is try to compartmentalize these things. And so you have the dominion-minded people over here. You have the reclusive, productive, quiet, contemplative folks over here. You've got people who are just like all about family and nothing else. You've got all these different things. But what we see here is the blessed life is all of it together. Obeying God's commandments, all of them, not some of them. The image bearer, Adam, reflects God's attributes in, with his head in the heavens and his feet on the earth. Man was made to be a mediator of God's blessing. Because what does he, he, if he's going to fulfill what God has commanded him to do, if he's going to live the blessed life, it's going to have an effect on everything else that he touches. That's what he says. He says, be fruitful and take dominion. And he mentions all the categories of animal and plant life on earth. The, the blessing that flows from heaven to Adam is meant, he's then meant to mediate it to the whole world. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans, where the earth is groaning and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Because the blessing to the, the created order is supposed to come through us. But what happens? What happens? Man stops up his ears to God's word and he falls in disobedience and therefore creation is cursed from heaven. Mankind's blessed dominion is replaced with a laborious toil. As we read in Genesis 3, 15 to 19, the rest of the biblical story of salvation anticipates and yearns for a restoration of this moment in 128. The rest of the Bible after the fall is about how you get man standing there with his ear inclined towards heaven to receive the Lord's blessing. That's what God wants back. It, what he wants is very simple. He wants you and him to have a face-to-face -face relationship where he blesses you from heaven. That's what he wants. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 12. We see that this was his intent once he began the long mysterious plan to restore man, what is he restoring him to? He's restoring him to this unfallen relationship that he has with Adam. We read in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What he's doing with Abram and then Abraham and Abraham's descendants is is restoring man to this relationship in which man is standing there with an ear inclined towards heaven receiving the blessing of God. He does not say, go and get all of those rebels and bring them here so that I can tell them what to do. What I want is commands, and what I want is obedience. No, he says, I'm going to now, through you, Abraham, bring man back into fellowship with me so that he may receive a word of blessing, that he may receive the favored words of God from heaven. And Jesus fulfills this promise. In him, we can stand before the face of God and receive the blessed word. If you turn to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3 in verse 7 through 9, this is what we read there from Paul. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So through Christ, we become sons of Abraham. Through Christ, we, become, we are restored to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where, where this, this thing that only Moses was able to experience in the tent of meeting with this face-to-face, friendly relationship. In Christ, we are restored to a position, that we, the, the position that we were meant to have from the beginning standing on our two feet with our ears inclined toward heaven to receive the blessing of the Lord. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we go from this to the next thing I would like to point out, and this is where we go into the grammar mode, is that God then speaks in the imperative mood, the verbal mood used for expressing commands. He goes from grace, he goes from gospel now, To law, after receiving God's blessing, man in his relationship to the Almighty is summoned to obedience, to the obedience of faith. The imperative mode is surely the most appropriate to that relationship between God and man. Thus the Creator, inaugurating human existence, inaugurating speech with man, inaugurating self-revelation from heaven, what he's saying is this is a moral universe. He delivers a series of five imperatives. And this is the ethic of man. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish, subdue, have dominion. After blessing Adam, the proclamation from heaven is an assertion of authority. Man receives words of blessing and words of command. Adam was made to incline his ear to both. It's not all grace. It's grace and obedience. It's grace so that we may obey, right? It's creeds and deeds, as we've been talking about for months. Now, continuing his message to man in Genesis 1, the creator shifts from the imperative mood to introduce man to something called the past tense. And if you look, I'm just going to do the first few words of verse 29. 
And God said, Behold, I have given. Behold, I have given. So he gives him blessing. He gives him commands. And now he introduces him to the past tense. I've, I've, I was already here before you got here, and I've, and I've already given to you. God existed prior to man. He was speaking. He was already telling a story. He was already revealing himself from heaven before there was anyone to receive the revelation. There, there is a story going on before you're born. There is a story going on before you're born again. There is a story, right? And this is how life works, isn't it? There's already a text and a subtext and layers and layers and layers of subtext to, to life before you even enter it. How many of you have started a new job and you go there and there's already all kinds of things going on, right? The boss has already been the boss for a while. The new employees have been there for a bit. You're entering something that existed before you. I was recently at the celebration of my, my cousin's wedding. And what I found fascinating while I was sitting there is this, the, the, here's this beautiful couple. We're telling this beautiful story about Adam and Eve, the story that God loves to tell about Jesus and the church. And, and all around, I only knew out of like the 50 people there, five people. And I was like, this, this happened in the middle of a great deal of other things, right? There was already a huge story going on. And so there, my, my other cousin, who I'm very close to, we're telling stories about the, the groom, and when he was a kid, it's very funny, and they're telling stories about the bride, her family is, and, and there's just, I was just amazed by how much had already been going on in all these lives, and now here these two stories have converged at this moment to tell a whole new, like a whole new branch of the story. And, and what Adam learns right after he's told... He's given blessing. He's told what to do. What he finds out is that the world isn't about him. It's already been going on before him, and God has already been telling a story. And he's taken into that story. He's made a part of that story, and that is what happens to all of us. The church was here before you got here. Seattle was here before you got here. America was here before you got here. It's not about you, right? You're on the stage. You're part of the story, but it's not about you. But isn't it gracious of God to make you a character in the story, to make you a part of what he's telling you? And that's all of human history. Human history began before there was a man. God began to speak from heaven before there was even an ear to hear it or an eye to see it. Now, what he says here is, behold, I have given. And this is exactly like John 3.16, God so loved the world he gave. Right? And this is just an example of where scripture just repeats itself. Hey, by the way, in case you forgot, God loves the world, and so he gives. And, and from right there, <laughs> John uses this verse that everybody makes a muck of, right? They, they put it on at the Eagles game. They put it on a sign and hold it up, John 3.16. It's crazy. People make a lot out of this verse. They forget verse 17 very easily. But for me, I've never quite gotten over just that first part of it. And, and, and John is echoing man's first encounter with God. I so love the world, I gave. The life within me, the love within me cannot be held back. It, I don't want to hold it back. It flows out. It's expressed. It's revealed. The initiative lies wholly on God's side. Man is standing there simply receiving these things. He hasn't yet said anything. He receives a blessing, he receives a command, and then he founds out that he's already been given all kinds of things, and he has to now go around and even name them. Oh, this is a deer. 
This is an elephant. This is a dog. He's like, look at all this stuff God made for me. We're told that there's gold in the ground. We're told that there's precious stones in the ground. If you read the account, all the world is full of things that, that God has given to man. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What, what we're told in all this is there, is there is an action before our reaction. There is a revelation before our response to the revelation. There is a story already going on that we are made a part of. There is a narrative in progress before you were born, just as there was a narrative in progress before Adam was made. C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay, Religion and Dogma, I'm sorry, Religion Without Dogma, I apologize. The initiative lies wholly on his side. If he can be known, it will be by self-revelation on his part, not by speculation on ours. We therefore look for him where it is claimed that he has revealed himself by miracle, by inspired teachers, by enjoined ritual. We look for him where he has told us he is found. In the following chapter of Genesis, in God's second word to man, the language becomes more complex. We, we have the imperative mood, we have the past tense. And, and then in Genesis 2.17, God says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now here, God is speaking in the future tense, but it's full of possibilities. And close observation shows that in this one verse, the future tense is used in three different ways. First, as a more acute form of imperative, thou shalt not. Second, as a hypothesis, in the day that thou eatest. Third, as a cautionary prophecy, thou shalt surely die. In short, what I'm saying is that there is a, capa- a capacity for manyness found even in the single tense of a verb. There are options for man now. It's a world of possibility. This is what I have done. Now what are you going to do? And isn't that the, the very nature of the relationship we have? He, we love because he loved us. We are given a law. And are we going to obey it or are we not? Are we going to incline our ear towards him or aren't we? Are we going to have life and the blessed life or aren't we? Adam was made to choose right there in the very beginning. You have a will now. I've told you what I have done. Here is my blessing. Go, therefore, son, into the world and make a decision. He has a choice. Obey and choose life. Disobey, choose death. It is a world of life and death. It didn't become a world of life and death. It was already a world of life and death. And and what does Job tell us? Man was born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. God said, this is a very good world. Now go into the garden and guard and keep it. Well, guard it from what? Right? Life and death is there in the world. Decision is there in the world. Wisdom is necessary from the very beginning. And this is consistent throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 30 Verse 19 to 20, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, 
loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Now, just because I, I don't tire of making this point about dispensationalism, that's not just the Old Testament God speaking. God is God. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. It's still about, here is what I've done for you. What are you going to do with it? We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What are you going to choose? Now, what did you choose yesterday, life or death? What did you choose last week? What are you going to choose tomorrow? Is there no hope for you if you chose death? No, now what you can do, right? Now you repent. Now you incline your ear to heaven. You call what you did, what God calls it. You tell him he's not going to be surprised. And then what you've done is now you've chosen life. And this is, what we get, this is our responsibility. Is what I did a sin or not? This, this, this opportunity is here. Am I going to take this opportunity for the flesh or am I going to take this opportunity to obey God? And this is what life is about, life or death. And what we have is a gracious God who is watching us every day. He says, okay, go out there now in this world that I have made for you, that I filled with you. You have my blessing. Go forth and choose life or choose death. Oh, you chose death again. I love you. Come here. Here's a hug. I forgive you. You are restored to me. Here's my word of blessing in Christ. Okay, now go out tomorrow and choose life or death. And this is what the Christian life is. And the more we incline our ear to heaven, the more we understand what's expected of us, the more we understand what God has done for us so that we can go out and do what we are required to do. There are crucial lessons to be drawn from Genesis 1.28. From the moment that God first addresses man from heaven, history is married to grammar. The two are joined together as one. In his reflections on the relationship of grammar to history, Patrick Henry Reardon wrote in a Touchstone magazine article these words. The entire idea of the Bible is historical. It is a long structural narrative running from the creation of the world to the founding of the church. Salvation history is not simply an aspect or theme of the Bible. Book by book, it is the Bible's foundational substance. With respect to either, either matter or form, not one word of God's revelation can be separated from history. All of history, is, it's about grammar. What happened? What is happening? What will happen? How did I get here? What am I supposed to do about it now? And what will the result be? And God says, right, man, man blinks for the first time. He looks into the sky. The word of blessing, the word of grace comes to him, and then commandment, and then choice. And that is the Christian life. In that historical account spoken by God, man was made to receive words from heaven. His place in the story is to be the recipient of the words of heaven, words from heaven. 
Hearing symbolizes the proper response to God in the Bible. God opens the ears to hear his word. He gives the ears of the prophets in his revelation, it says in Isaiah. He exhorts his people either directly or through prophets to hear his revelation. To faithfully hear God's voice requires personal apprehension, acceptance, inclination. We have to incline our ears. We have to feed our ears with the word of God to even receive it. We have to tune our ears, right? The sheep will know the voice of the Lord. How? We have to be, right, given this covenantal relationship, and, and, and we're told what God did for us, and we receive it or we don't. And once we receive it, we now enter into this dialogue between heaven and earth where our responsibility is to receive. We must receive the word of God. We must obey the word of God. We must cling to the word of God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now what this tells us is the final word of God from heaven is what? This is why the revelation is closed. God has nothing further to say to you. He has said it all in Jesus Christ. right? There's no more revelation. No matter how holy you are, no matter how close to God you are, there's no going in the back room and receiving direct revelation. It's over. God has said his final word from heaven, and his final word from heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. His incarnation, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and, and then he established, right, the church. So the apostles told us about that. And what do they tell us? Jesus. You turn to Galatians, you turn to Titus, you turn to Corinthians, you turn to Thessalonians. That's how you say the word. And what is the revelation from heaven? Don't look elsewhere. Even if angels come like they used to and tell you things from heaven, don't believe it because God's final word has been revealed. And, and what was man's role in that is, is to but receive it. Right? You, you receive him, Jesus, the final word from heaven, and you receive the one who sent him, the speaker, which is God the Father. And he has nothing, nothing further to say. Jesus is God's incarnate word, and thus the Father commands us to listen to him in faith and obedience. Matthew 17, 5, he was still speaking, this is at the transfiguration, When, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The parable of the sower demonstrates that the efficacy of Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom depends on faithful hearing. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 13, 9, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, does he say, let him who has circumcised ears hear? No, he is the king, he is the Lord, he is the one that all of this was about. He comes and he says, if you have ears, hear these words. If you have ears, hear these words. To hear him, to receive that word is to be his child. We are his sheep who recognize his voice. 
To be spiritually hard of hearing, to have uncovenanted, uninclined ears means that you remain dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what Matthew 13, 13 through 16 is about. You turn your ears towards heaven like man was meant to, and you receive the revealed word of God, God's final word from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, or you remain in your sins. Jesus is the true Adam who receives the word of God from heaven, who obeys the word of God from heaven, who lived the blessed life. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, this is what I'm I'm going to close with here, okay? Jesus is the one who shows us how this is done. What Adam had was a face-to-face relationship with God. He walked with him in the cool of the day. Moses was, see, was given a little picture of what that's like in the tent of meeting. And, and what we see in the Gospels is, is, is Jesus and the Father have this running dialogue. They're constantly talking to one another. They're constantly speaking to one another. And, and part of the revelation of the Gospels is to show us the dialogue that they're having as an invitation to join it. Because this, this is what I find fascinating. Adam doesn't say anything in Genesis 1, does he? But are we, are we likewise simply told to receive and say nothing? No, right? The glorified man, the final man, the finished man, the complete man, man as he is ultimately supposed to be in his full maturity is seen in Christ, where it's not just that he receives it, but that he's able to speak back. And, and in their relationship, the Trinity is revealed in the dialogue. That's another purpose of the dialogue. It's through the dialogue that almost all Trinitarian theology comes. But it's also showing us what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Now, Fred Sanders is a theologian. He wrote a book called How the Trinity Changes Everything. And he wrote this. One of the most powerful features of the Trinitarianism of the New Testament is that it is revealed to us largely in the conversation between the Father and the Son. Even in the darkness of the cross itself, the Son keeps up an intimate running dialogue with his Father. Jesus is confident that his prayers are heard and that the Father is with him. And in a few spectacular instances of a voice speaking from heaven, we get to hear the Father declaring his attitude towards his beloved Son. All this inner Trinitarian conversation is intentionally held in public for our instruction. What they said to and about one another is for us to overhear It's not only a solid foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, it is also a marvelous invitation for us to be included in the conversation. We see this dialogue at Christ's baptism and at the transfiguration. We hear it in the prayer of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, John 11, 41 to 42. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing here. It's not enough that I hear you and you hear me. I want them to hear us speaking to one another. Now, why did he do that? There are times in the Gospels where I think we drastically misunderstand what's being said because we think that Jesus is only speaking to the people around him. There are times where there, there's a little, little mysteries all around in the Gospels where if you, if you think about it this way, he's not talking to the people who are standing in front of him. He's talking to God. 
Because to him, God is present. God is at hand. God is real. The God with me is his father. They're, They're there, and they can speak to each other whenever they want. And sometimes I think the apostles are a little like, what did you just say? He's not talking to you, Peter. Be quiet. Right? Just observe. Observe. Now, this running dialogue is why in Luke 11, 1, the apostles, the disciples at the time, I'm sorry, asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Now, here, here's my question. These are Jews. Have they never heard of prayer? Have they never participated in prayer? Have they never witnessed a prayer? Were they not taught the prayers of the patriarchs? Or were they not taught the prayers of their people? Do, if anyone knows how to pray, wouldn't it be a first century faithful Jew in Israel? I think they would know. And yet they see what Jesus is doing and they say, listen, teach us to do what you're doing. Right? Com- compared to what you're doing, we have no idea how to pray or what prayer even is. And so teach us. Because they understood the situation with Jesus was unique. The situation with Jesus was something they wanted, and, and they had to be taught how to do it. There's something about uh, Jesus that's different than everyone else, and it's because he's unfallen man. He's Adam from one, Genesis 1.28. He has an ear inclined to heaven. He receives the blessing from heaven, and he speaks back. And, and there's this face-to-face dialogue that man was meant to have. And all of the disciples are like, I don't know what's going on, man, but your prayer life is amazing. Okay? There seems to be something about it that's different than everyone else. Could you please teach us? And he says, just follow me and watch. Watch. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Listen to what I say and how I say it and how it's received from heaven. Luke 9, 34 to 35. As Jesus was saying these things, a cloud came down and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. See, the blessing before there's command. Then he says, listen to him. John 12, 28 to 30. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said... That it had thundered, others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The dialogue between Jesus and his father is public, and it is meant to draw us in. Now, this is what I have to say about this. because (laughs) My retired pastor friend last week who listened to this sermon noticed an error that I made that I'm going to now correct in real time. Because I said, go away from here and read your Bibles. And I saw him giggle, and I didn't understand why until later. And he says, you just told us for an hour to listen with our ears, and then you told us to go and read with our eyes. I was like, that's a good point, actually. And this takes us into something else that I think is very This is why we sing the word. This is why so much of the word of God has to be incorporated into our songs, because when you're singing to one another, you're declaring the word of God to one another. This is why it's so important to have close fellowship with one another, where when I'm discouraged or I'm arrogant or I'm sinning, the word of God is, is declared to me from others. This is why we've now done something where we're in a three-year plan where the entire Bible will be read out loud at our services, because we don't want to just make it about the sermon We want the entire, the full counsel of God declared in Linwood again and again and again and again. It's part of our job to declare the word of God so that people may hear it. 
right? I, I, and we're, we're modern people. Augustine thought it was insane that Ambrose could read without moving his mouth. Because in, in, in Augustine's day, there's no such thing as reading in words that, that you just have silently in your own mind. That's very, very modern. I think we lose something by not having audio Bibles. I think we lose something by not opening the Word of God in our homes and reading it out loud to one another. It wasn't, in, I argue, it was not meant to be read privately in your mind. That was not the purpose of it. It was written to be read out loud. It's, it's, it's read, it's supposed to be received with the ear, not the eyes alone. And I think part of the fact that we've made it the eyes alone is part of our spiritual torpor. It's part of the problem with the modern church. Because when I, I can, right? When I'm sitting there and I've got this thing, I don't want to read this part. Hold on. <laughs> but the other day, you know, I had my son reading out loud, and he got to the part that I normally skip. It's true, I do. And I, had, I could do nothing but sit there and listen. And I thought, how good for me to not be able to control what's being read. Right? Because sometimes what you need is someone to open the Bible and to read it out loud to you, even the parts you don't want. And think how much control we have, even over our Bible reading. But if, if we simply open the Word of God, if we turned on audio Bibles, you, it, right, it's much, much harder to skip the parts you don't like. The ear was made to receive the Word of God from heaven. That's what you were made to do. And, and not just receive it, but to actually engage face-to-face dialogue with God. When you get on your knees and you fold your hands and you say the word Jesus, you have now entered the Holy of Holies and you are face-to-face with God, and there now is a dialogue. Your conscience is speaking to you. The word of God, as you have received it, is speaking to you, and you are responding. God is speaking through the providence of history, and you're responding. Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? What am I going to do about that? This is what's concerning me. This is what I'm ashamed of. This is what is hurting me. And this ongoing dialogue is what you were made to, to do. That's why you're here. Your ear was made to receive the word of God from heaven. And not not just any word, a word of blessing, and a word of order and commandment, and a word of authority that you could then, you, right? Then you take that word and you go out and you have to grow up and become a man and a woman of God who actually then obeys and works out that word that you have received in real time. This is not a simple life that we've been called to as Christians. It's complex. It's dynamic. And it's one where we're going to get it wrong again and again and again. But it's a dialogue. No, not that. Don't do that. No, you shouldn't have done that. Yes, this is good. More of that. And, and that's what the Word of God does, right? When we read it, when, we're, when it's read out loud, when you hear these sermons, when you hear the songs, you're, you're entering this dialogue that's ongoing and constant. And so stop inclining your ear your itching ears towards those things you, see, you find to be only favorable, right? Stop feeding your ear garbage and, and, and look to meditate with your ears on what's true, beautiful, and good. And, and don't just receive it. Speak back. Talk back. That's what God, he wants you to engage with him in the, the same relationship that he had with his son. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your self-revelation. We pray, God, that you would um, bless us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that receives, Lord, that you would circumcise our ears and our hearts, that we might receive your word, that we might understand it, that we might obey it. We thank you for your gracious patience with us, your long-suffering loving kindness towards us. We thank you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us ears to hear, and we pray, God, that we would um, delight to hear your voice. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, and amen.